Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All is a podcast from the Center for Health Equity Transformation, gathering voices in research and communities around Chicago. Conversations and interviews will discuss the importance of achieving health equity, highlighting health disparities, and exploring innovative ways to improve health for all. Thank you for joining us on Skinny Trees, Lift Health for All. We, like many of our fellow Chicagoans, are staying home and practicing social distancing to flatten the curve. We're here to present a mini-series, COVID-19 in our Chicago communities. Each mini-episode will focus on a different community in Chicago to find out how they are coping with these difficult times. This episode features our co-host, Ivy Long, interviewing Dr. Marcus Wong, who is an emergency medicine resident at the University of Illinois, Chicago, currently rotating at Advocate Lutheran Hospital, located in Park Ridge. He is in his last months of residency before becoming a full-fledged medical doctor. Welcome, Marcus, and take it away, Ivy. Thank you. Thank you, Marcus, for being on our episode today. So can you tell us a little bit, what do you do? What is your position? And can you describe the community that you serve? Yeah, so first, thank you for bringing me on the show. Um, Definitely a pleasure to speak with you all. So yes, thanks for the intro as well. I am a resident in training, or a doctor in training. That's what we do in residency in my final year out of three years training in emergency medicine. So for those who don't know, that means after medical school, you choose what kind of doctor you want to be, and that's what you do your several years of residence again. So I'm in my final year and about to be finished with that, and that means I work in the ER, in the emergency room. So a few other things. My program is with University of Illinois, and we actually rotate all throughout the city, four main hospitals, in different areas. So the idea is that we serve different populations um, in different neighborhoods. And of course, in Chicago, they're all very different. So this past month, and every month we rotate to one of the four sites. So this past month, I have been out near Park Ridge, which is close to O'Hare Airport. So it's more of a suburb area with a different population, of course, than say um, near Chinatown at Mercy Hospital or at the university. kind of west of the loop. Thank you. First of all, how are you doing working in the front line? And what are you doing to protect yourself and your family? Yeah, so of course, everyone is really nervous about what's going on with the COVID virus. And definitely it is happening right now in Chicago. I know if you're not in the hospital or the emergency room, it's hard to to see other than looking at the news. But there are people coming in who are needing to stay in the hospital, leading to stay in the intensive care unit and eating ventilators, meaning that they have to have a breathing tube down their mouth into their lungs and with a breathing machine to breathe for them. And that's happening throughout Chicago, including the hospital where I am right now. How are we doing so far? I'm sure you see on the news, places like New York is pretty overwhelmed. I think in Chicago, it's starting to go upwards. We're not overwhelmed at this time at least in my hospital, but we already do have a lot of cases and they come in every day. So we are kind of bracing for the storm or the tsunami as we are all seeing it. For protection, we are doing what everyone else is doing in hospitals. Uh, That means that we're putting on a mask uh, that covers the nose and and mouth and um, a covering that covers the eyes, as well as a gown that covers the body. But the main thing is keeping it from the eyes and the nose and and mouth. So we do that every time we see a patient that 
we might have suspicion for the virus. And actually most of us are just keeping on the face shield and the mouth mask, the, the entire shift in the emergency room. Partly because we don't have that much supplies. So we just mainly use the same one for the day. And that's, and, and that's what we're doing. That must be tough to keep your personal protective equipment on the whole shift. Um, I mean, you mentioned a little bit already. What do you see that maybe the general public don't see outside of the hospital? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, when I go home or if, if I walk outside, you know, I see people just walking around and I think to myself, wow, I'm one of the few people that actually is seeing things up close um, with patients that are sick. because very few other people see that. Even other doctors that don't work in the emergency room or ICU aren't really seeing this much. It's a very small group of people that actually sees this, but there are some people who are really sick. Um, I'm sure you know the COVID virus makes it very difficult to breathe for a lot of people. And I have been seeing people come in who are struggling to breathe. We call it respiratory failure, respiratory arrests, people who even to the point where they're tiring out, I'm trying to paint a picture. Uh, people coming in, puffing and puffing, you can only speak maybe one word at a time, and they look completely winded, you know, like, like imagine they ran like 10 marathons. They look terrible. They're about to pass out. And you know that they can't do that much longer. Their muscles are tired. They're going to stop breathing. And at that point, you have to do aggressive treatment, which means give them a breathing tube down the mouth. It goes down the throat into the windpipe, and that's a very advanced special procedure that we are trained to do as ER doctors. And then we put them onto the ventilator, which is the breathing machine. And we also put the patient to sleep because it's very painful and uncomfortable. So what happens is we take away their work of breathing so that they can rest and basically the treatment is what we call supportive, meaning we keep someone on the machine until their body has beat back the virus or they regain enough energy to get off the ventilator. Um, but that means they're spending days, maybe even weeks, it seems, in the intensive care unit in the hospital. So yeah. this is something I'm seeing up close, and it's pretty scary when you see people who can't breathe. And that's not something you see on the news. I mean, you, you don't see videos of people struggling to breathe. It's definitely, it's good. That violates any, all privacy laws and everything. And I don't think people want to see that either. But sometimes I think if people did see that, what I see, then I think that people would realize how, how bad it can be. <laughs> That's very true. I really, I, I totally agree. Um, if people see the seriousness of it, then they would take this illness a lot more seriously. I mean, you described how difficult it is for these patients to when they go to the ER. Can you describe a little bit the kind of patient you see with COVID-19? I think a lot of people assume that only the older population get affected. Do you see um, a variety of different patients? Yeah, there actually is a wide variety. The majority of people who are really sick, needing the breathing tube, um, tend to be older adults. Again, at the hospital I'm at now, Advocate Lutheran, the population is a little more affluent suburb. There's a lot of nursing homes in the area, a lot of more elderly. So a little bit skewed um, from what I've been seeing the past weeks, uh, but tends to be older uh, adults who have the serious symptoms, which matches what you hear on the news. 
but and that's the big but there are still people of all ages who are getting very sick with the virus the majority of younger healthy people um, don't get so sick to need the hospital but there are some who are and it's kind of mysterious we don't really know why or who or which which people who are originally young and healthy are being really are coming in very sick um, just take for an example, a number of days ago, I saw someone come in, he's 34, no medical history, and he had been coughing for about a week and was, was doing fine at home, um, but then suddenly got worse, which is exactly the story we hear a lot. You cough, cough, have mild symptoms for about a week, maybe even feel better, and then suddenly get a lot worse. And this guy, in the course of the time he was in our ER, he got a lot worse. He came in initially speaking full sentences, not hopping and puffing that bad, but his oxygen levels were low and we realized he needed to stay in the hospital. When he first came in, we didn't think, oh, this is a guy who's about to die. We need to put a breathing tube. We just gave him some oxygen on a mask. But for the number of hours he was in the ER, he ended up getting worse and worse uh, to the point where he got really bad and we did need to put a breathing tube. So that just highlights, wow, how how quickly this can progress and that it can affect people who are, who are otherwise young and healthy. So it's affecting everybody. Thank you for sharing that case with us. Um, I think it's very important for everybody to see that it doesn't just affect the older population and does hit other ages as well. Um, so you mentioned that you rotate throughout the city at different hospitals. So who do you see as the most vulnerable in your communities that you serve? Most vulnerable? That's a really good question. So like I said earlier, it's pretty clear that the, the subset of the population that's more heavily affected with severe symptoms are the older adults or people with maybe underlying conditions, say diabetes or uh, kidney disease, etc. So I would say the vulnerable population is this population. So in particular, people in nursing homes, at, of course, and rehab facilities, but not just that, there, there are a lot of people at home, say uh, older adults that live with their kids or grandkids and could be potentially exposed to, to them. And the reason I mention that is we're finding out a lot more and more that a lot of people are asymptomatic carriers and can spread the disease, which is very, very scary and disturbing, meaning you could have the virus and not even know it and not have symptoms or maybe very mild symptoms that you would barely think are symptoms, you know, barely a sore throat and nothing else. That's more likely to happen if you're a young, healthy person. But if say you're a young, healthy person and you have a little sore throat and you think, oh, I don't really know what that is. And then you come home and you live with grandma, grandpa, big family, then you could potentially expose those people to the virus. And whereas you may not have much symptoms or maybe not at all, the older adults say grandma or grandpa can get it pretty bad. So I would say the vulnerable population is definitely the older adults. Um, that's, that's definitely for sure. Yeah. Then what would you say to those people who may not be taking this as seriously as they should? So maybe they're not taking proper precautions like social distancing, not having trust in public health orders or not following the stay at home order. Well, I understand it's very hard to take things seriously if you don't see things up close in front of you. I think for the majority of people, it feels very surreal because a lot of us aren't 
in contact with sick people and we're being forced to stay at home. I'm one of the few that actually still goes to work and sees people, but a lot of other people I know, my other friends, they're just stuck at home and it's a really weird feeling. You don't see anything, but you're being told that people are dying and sick. So it's hard to take seriously, I understand. But that said, I think, yeah, I think the message that needs to be clear is, I think two main things, especially if you're younger and healthy and without medical problems, you could still get the virus and you could still get very sick and you could still die very easily, affecting some young people very heavily. But at the same time, think about trying to protect other people and the vulnerable people in the population, especially older people. Just be aware that you could be carrying the virus if you expose yourself without social distancing and you could be carrying it without symptoms and you could pass it along to people who are at risk. And that's a big danger that you should be aware of. Thank you for pointing all that out. What do you see as the greatest need right now? The greatest need for um, for the general population or for Yeah, just for medical? everyone, for public health, for public safety, just in general. I would say I've been trying to follow the news and kind of get a feel of what's going on in the big picture. It's very different from face-to-face with people in the ER. But I think we really need to try to get tests out there so we can actually get a sense of who has it and what communities it's spreading, et cetera. That's not something I have really any control of working in the ER. It's more of a big picture thing with public health departments and the government. But I think without that, we're not really going to get a good sense of who has it or even who has it and doesn't have symptoms, uh, for example. I think that's the biggest need. If we don't have eyes to see what's going on and where it is, then it's very hard to respond um, to figure out what to do. That's very true. Um, and what most concerns you about the public returning to their daily lives and routine when the stay-at-home order is lifted? Well, the concern obviously is that it will spike again and the virus will spread again if there's no social distancing. And I'm not a public health expert, and I know I'm not an expert on this virus, and we're still learning a lot more and more, but I fear that if we do things prematurely to allow people to go back to work, go back to daily lives, go back to big gatherings, that we may start ramping up the virus again. We might let it a chance, give it a chance to spread again, especially since we don't fully understand it fully. We don't understand how many people don't have symptoms but can spread it, which is scary. And we also don't understand which communities, which areas have it um, without testing. So I think that is a danger to restarting things prematurely. I'm sure as a healthcare professional and for us as public health professional, we're all worried about that. We don't know how are we going to safely return to normal life. What kind of impact do you see this crisis leaving on healthcare as a long term? Hmm, that's a good question. I would say big picture. Well, I know a lot of doctors, a lot of clinics are now doing telehealth appointments all through video chat, things like that. And that's a technology that's there, but I don't know how much it's really been used till now. It's being forced to be used. So I think that may be a positive thing once this finishes, if it if this crisis ends, that we may be able to use a lot more telehealth in the way we reach out to patients, um, especially patients that are outpatient going to the clinic as opposed to really sick people having to come to the hospital. And in a lot of ways, that might actually help the whole healthcare system in a lot of ways. 
I know it's a lot, it's hard for people to get appointments and get to some place. A lot of people, uh, especially with certain populations, have uh, difficulties with just transportation or getting time off work or whatever to see the doctor. And if there are ways to do this with telehealth over the computer, eh, I think that might help. It might change things in the future. That's one idea. I'm not. I don't really know for sure. It's not my. That's not the kind of medicine I do. Because of this, we realize we can do a lot of things without being in person. My last question is: How does the COVID nineteen pandemic impact or bring the existing issues to the surface? Well, I think the first thing to say is this is a totally new, unique. Event. We haven't seen a pandemic like this in a long, long time. Not in our lifetimes. Not at least back since 1918, the Spanish flu, which none of us were alive at that time. So any kind of event like this is going to show deficiencies or, or things like that within any system. That said, it sounds like on the macro level, on the big picture level, and I'm basing a lot of this on news that I'm getting from the same sites everyone else is. But lack of preparedness in the healthcare system, lack of preparedness with equipment such as protective equipment like the masks, the face shields, etc. Uh, that seems to be an issue that's really dogged our country's response to this, and it affects us in the healthcare field. In that, we may not know if we're going to get another you know, shipment of these masks that we need to see patients, because if we don't have them, then we could get sick. And having healthcare workers fall sick is the worst thing because they're the people you need to help take care of this. So I think that deficiency has been exposed. The whole system of being able to respond to a crisis, and one example being supply of personal protective equipment. You can extend that to other supplies like ventilators, uh, stuff like that. So that's one thing that's exposed. I would say that's the main thing. Yeah, I think that's really that's the main thing to realize how our preparedness is not very well equipped to handle anything like that. Well, thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for all you do. Okay, thanks a lot for inviting me on the show. Definitely a lot of fun to speak out on this. Again, thank you, Marcus. Thank you for your service. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to wash your hands for 20 seconds. Cough, sneeze into your elbow, and don't touch your face. Stay home, save lives. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and authors and do not necessarily reflect or represent the views and opinions of the following entities. National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute, Northwestern University, Northwestern Medicine, Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, the Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, the Institute for Public Health and Medicine, University of Illinois at Chicago, and Northeastern Illinois University. Skinny Trees is proudly produced and edited in the Center for Health Equity Transformation, led by Dr. Melissa Simon at Northwestern University. Dr. Simon is a member of the United States Preventive Services Task Force, USPSTF. This podcast does not necessarily represent the views and policies of the USPSTF. Due to the social nature of this podcast, the content used might be copyrighted by another entity or person. 
this podcast claims no copyright to set content.